All right, well, good morning, church family. How are you this morning? A little bit cooler the last couple of days. That's been nice, huh? Well, you know how the Bible says a man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps? Um, That's true for me this morning because I plan to be sitting where you're sitting this morning and not preaching up here. Uh, But the Lord had other plans. Uh, Pastor Eric gave me a call, uh, actually sent me a text on Thursday and said that he's um, been having difficulty with a fever. Um, He hasn't been feeling well, so you might want to get ready to preach a sermon. So I'm thinking, man, it's Thursday night, preach a sermon, wow. All right, Lord, this is, uh, this is going to be a, a big faith test for me. Um, and, you know, it's, it's been, um, been kind of tough because the schedule, I'm sure you guys can relate, the schedule is just so busy constantly, especially if you have kids and sports and all kinds of things going on. So um, it's just been one of those times where you just kind of think, wow, Lord, you're going to have to do something that I can't do because how am I going to put together a sermon in, you know, a couple of nights? Uh, anyhow, we want to definitely keep Pastor Eric in our prayers you know, this is a, a challenge for him. I know he's probably disappointed that, that he can't be here this morning and wasn't able to teach the course seminars like he's been doing and doing such a great job of. And uh, Pastor Eric, I'm sure you're probably watching, so we just want to let you know that we love you, we appreciate you, we're praying for you, um, we hope you get well soon. And so since uh, Pastor Eric can't be with us this morning, we're going to take a, a one-week detour from our study of the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to be in the book of Romans instead. So I want to invite you at this time to open your copy of God's Life-Giving Word and turn with me to Romans chapter 3. That's where we'll be, Romans chapter 3. Romans is without question one of my favorite books in the Bible. It's a, a wonderful book. It's actually been referred to as the Gospel of Romans because it tells us about the good news of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Martin Luther once said of this book that it's the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel, and is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. He said, it can never be read or pondered too much, and the more it's dealt with, the more precious it becomes, and the better it tastes. And and so with that said, I'm really excited to dig in together in Romans this morning, church, because what could possibly be better to hear this day or any day, than the good news of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? All right, so why don't we go ahead and stand together as we prepare to do just that. We want to honor the Lord as his word is read. So I want to ask you to stand with me. I'll be reading from verse 21 and going through verse 26. Our primary focus is going to be on verses 24 and 25. So hear now the words of our Lord through the Apostle Paul, beginning in verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith, Jesus. Grass withers, the flower falls, but the words of our Lord endure forever. Amen? Let's go ahead and pray together. 
our Holy Father, our Creator, Maker of heaven and earth, we're humbled by your presence among us today. You're the author of life. You're the maker of all things, things seen and unseen. Lord, you're here with us yet even now in this place of worship on this your day, the Lord's day. We ask, Father, that through this time of worship and celebration that you would draw us deeper into relationship with you and with one another. We ask, Lord, that you renew our faith and revive our joy, that you would restore our commitment to living according to the ways of Jesus. Lord, wherever we've failed, wherever we've spoken unkindly, wherever we've forgotten to embody the gospel of Jesus, we ask for your forgiveness. Lord God, please grant us the wisdom we need to understand your word today, the strength to follow after Christ, and the courage to share your transforming love with others. Grant us the grace we ask to be gospel-minded, that we would both live the gospel and preach it. Lord, having said that, we pray for any with us this morning who do not currently have the gospel applied to their own life. Might they see their need for Christ today and his righteousness. Do you grant repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ to any here who have not been justified by your grace as a gift? Lord, we pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus, the word made flesh, the only Savior and our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. All right. So if you're familiar with the book of Romans, you'll know that we're at a a major turning point here in the third chapter of Paul's epistle. Paul's been establishing the good news in the verses that we just read together by explaining in great detail the bad news. So for two and a half chapters up to this point in his epistle, Paul's been saying that we're all in very serious trouble. Why? Why? Because all of humanity stands condemned under the wrath of God because of our sin. That's the the context of our text here in chapter 3. Ever since chapter 1, verse 18, the Apostle Paul's been functioning, as it were, like a prosecuting attorney, both for the Gentiles and the Jews. All the world might be found guilty before God. That's what he said. You can picture it this way. We've got court in session with the the honorable, eternal, sovereign God presiding. His honor the Lord, the the holy and righteous judge. And he's got his prosecuting attorney, the Apostle Paul, presenting his case. And and the indictment has been set forth. And you can actually just look back in the chapter just a little bit at verse 9 to to see Paul's indictment there. It says there in verse 9, For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. All right, so for those of you who may not know, an indictment is is a formal written charge. It's a a statement framed by a prosecuting authority and charging a a person with a a particular offense. And and every indictment has to have at least one count, at least one specific charge. And listen, the more counts to the indictment, the more serious the charge actually is. And, And Paul has just finished listing no less than 14 counts, believe it or not by quoting from the law of God to demonstrate the radical depravity of the entire human race. And I really want us to look at these counts together because it it does set the stage for the the glory of the good news that's found in Christ alone. Only when you understand how bad the bad news is will you ever truly appreciate how really good the good good news is. So so notice with me, just back up a little bit to verse 10 of Romans chapter 3. And look at these counts that Paul's listed in his indictment against the entire human race. 
Look at this. This is, this is incredible. He says, first of all, count number one, no one is righteous, not one. Count number two, no one understands. I mean, imagine standing in court, and this is the indictment against you. Count number three, no one seeks for God. Count number four, all have turned aside. Notice the universal language that he's using, none and all. Count number five, together they've all become worthless. Count number six, no one does good, not even one. Count number seven, their throat is an open grave. Count number eight, they use their tongues to deceive. Count number nine, the venom of asps is under their lips. Count number 10, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Count number 11, their feet are swift to shed blood. Count 12, in their paths are ruin and misery. Count 13, the way of peace they have not known. And then finally, we have count number 14, there is no fear of God before their eyes. These are the, the 14 specific written counts in Paul's indictment against the whole world. And essentially, they can all be summed up like this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, both Jew and Gentile alike. That's bad news, isn't it? And that's bad news. The, the, the evidence is overwhelming that everyone, all of us, are guilty as charged. And, and listen, it's especially bad news when you understand what the punishment is for this crime. The, the punishment for this offense is eternal condemnation. Eternal damnation, that's the sentence for the crime of sinning against an eternally holy God. That's the bad news. That, that all of humanity is guilty as charged and is deserving of an eternal death sentence. And so that's the immediate context of what Paul goes on to say to us in verses 21 to 26. And so here in Romans chapter 3 at verse 21, when he begins to announce the good news... It should make sense because we have a context to what's being said. We're, we're in desperate need of this good news that Paul begins to tell us about. There's, there's nothing in all of life that's more important for us than this news. And listen, Paul has some really surprising things to say here. He says, though we've wronged God by sinning against him, that we can actually be made right with God. The good news is there's a, a way out of this awful dilemma and to obtain a right standing before God, even though we stand before him guilty and condemned. We can actually be justified. That's astonishing. And as astonishing as that is, that's not what's most surprising. What's what's most surprising is how we actually obtain this right standing before God. And we come to find out that it's not in the way that we would think. Paul says there in verse 21 that it's obtained apart from keeping God's law. See that there in the verse. He says, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart or separate from the law. He says that the the law bears witness to it, but to be made right with God is something that actually happens apart from keeping the law of God. In other words, it's apart from any effort that we could possibly put forth to try to earn a right standing with God. And see, really, that's just the byproduct of the, the human mind that's been affected by sin. We seem to think that somehow we can try to earn favor with good works. But Paul says, no, it just doesn't work that way. Bad news is we need a a righteousness that none of us has and and could never possibly merit on our own. But the good news is the righteousness that we so desperately need is found in Jesus Christ alone through faith. 
The good news is the righteousness of God is displayed in the gospel apart from anything we, we can do, but rather in faith in Jesus and what Jesus has already done. And Paul explains that for us here in some astonishing detail, exactly what Jesus has done to make a person right with God. All right, so let's, let's look at this a little more closely now. We've got verse 21, which we already noted. The fact that a, a right standing with God comes apart from law-keeping or any kind of human effort. And then we see in verse 22 that instead to be absolved of our guilt or to have a, a right standing with holy God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Notice Paul says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now, as I was thinking about this passage over the last couple of days, uh, I was reminded that just a little over a month from now, we'll be celebrating Reformation Day. Reformation Day. I mean, I can't believe it's almost October, can you? This year is just going by so fast. Anyway, whenever I think about the Reformation and that incredible time there in church history, I'm always mindful of the, the great rally cry of the Reformation. The, the great rally cry of the Reformers is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And therefore, it's to the glory of God alone. So in this, this age of false teaching and corruption, these, these Protestant reformers, they went back to the Bible, and they found there the way of salvation. And instead of indulgences and Roman Catholic mass and relics and other kinds of superstitions, they rediscovered God's way of salvation, which is the gospel. And there were some really important statements that these reformers came up with during that time, which essentially summarize what the Bible teaches us about salvation, and they're known as the five sola statements. I'm sure some of you know about these five sola statements. The word, the word sola is Latin for alone, and men like Luther and John Calvin believe that, that salvation is a work of God alone. In other words, it's not earned by any effort of man, even as the Apostle Paul has stated here for us in Romans 3.21. It's by God's grace alone, on the basis of Christ alone, received through faith alone to the glory of God alone, with Scripture alone being the only final decisive authority on truth. Those are the five sola doctrines of the Reformation, that, that great movement which God used at that exciting time in the church history for the recovery of his gospel. Really, the, uh, the Protestant Reformation was about two things. It was about who has the authority to say what's true. It was about how to reconcile who we are with who God is. It, it recognized that God's word is the ultimate authority in this world and that the sinless life and sacrificial death of Jesus is the only answer for our sin and the only basis on which sinners can stand before a holy God, which the Bible says, again, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Latin, it's sola gratia, grace, sola fide, faith, solus Christus. And that's exactly what we find here in this beautiful passage of Scripture in Romans 3. And it's the very heart of the gospel. All right, so notice again with me what Paul says here in beginning in verse 23. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's our horrible, awful situation that we've gotten ourselves into. Again, it's, it's a compact summary of the bad news that Paul's told us about all the way up to this point in his letter. And then here's where the incredibly good news comes in. Look at verses 24 and 25. This is amazing. Paul says, And are justified by his grace, 
underline that, as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ, you can underline that, Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. You can underline that. See how Paul says that we're justified or that we're saved? Verse 24, justified by grace in Christ Jesus, and then at the end of verse 25, by faith. And so we actually find three of these wonderful five sola doctrines right here in these two verses. Salvation is by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone. And I really wish we had the time to break all these doctrines down in detail this morning because they're so amazing, so filled with wonder and awe, but we just don't have time to do that. So what I want to do instead is just focus on what salvation in Christ alone is this morning, the doctrine of solus Christus. And I've been praying that this will be a tremendous encouragement to you today and that your hearts will be filled with joy as you think about Jesus and what he's accomplished on your behalf, if you've truly trusted in him alone for the forgiveness of your sin. All right, so let's, let's read this incredible paragraph one more time, and let's really focus in together on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's read this one more time. Beginning in verse 21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All right, now let me ask you a question. Having read through this a couple of times already this morning, have you noticed that there's a problem here with this? See a problem as it relates to God in this text, especially considering what Paul said about our sinful condition? I mean, we've got his assessment of us. We know what it is, that all of humanity is unrighteous. He's, he's demonstrated that without question, that none is righteous, not one. Another way that you could say that is none is justified, no one, no one's justified. Why? Because we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And, and so having established that clearly in great detail for two and a half chapters, so there's no mistake about it on our part, that the wrath of God The wrath of righteous God is upon us because of our unrighteousness. How can verse 26 be possible based on that? I mean, how can it be possible? Verse 26 should cause us to to stop and say, wait a minute. Wait, Wait a minute here. Hold on a moment. How can God be just and then at the same time justify the unrighteous? You see the dilemma here? See the problem? How is it possible for God to remain righteous or just if he actually justifies an unrighteous sinner? See the problem with that? The the real problem, as it were, with salvation is not the matter of getting sinful people like us to a holy God. The real problem lies in getting a holy and righteous God to accept sinful people like us, listen, without violating his own justice. How can God maintain his righteousness, his justness, as it were, if he doesn't condemn us and pour out his wrath on the guilty sinner. See the problem with that? It's like a judge, a judge who declares a convicted murderer innocent. When all the 
evidence overwhelmingly proves his guilt. I mean, the family of that victim would be crying out, wait a minute, that's, that's unjust. This, this judge is corrupt. Somebody must have paid him off. I mean, how can the judge justify this murder when the evidence proves his guilt without a shadow of a doubt? See, that's the, the great dilemma that we have here in this text. If we've been judged guilty and condemned by God, then how can Paul turn around and say God can be righteous or just and then at the same time the justifier of the unrighteous? How can that be? Well, the last two words in verse 26 are the clue to everything that Paul's teaching us in this passage. He says that that we can be justified because of Jesus. We We can be justified because of Jesus. And if you look at the preceding verses, you can see how Paul has brought us here to this incredible blessed truth of being justified because of Jesus. Look at verse 22. He tells us that the righteousness of God comes through faith in who? Faith in Jesus. And then notice also verse 24. We're justified through the redemption that is found in who? In Christ Jesus. Then verse 26. We're justified as those, it says, who have faith in Jesus. And so what we have here in these verses, beloved, is the very heart and soul of the gospel. And in order to describe the blessings that come to us in Christ Jesus, you might have noticed that Paul uses three remarkable words. There there are three words that are without a doubt some of the most important words in the entire Bible. I mean, many would actually consider this to be the most important paragraph in the Bible, and within it we find three of the most important words in all the Bible. And if you really want to understand the beauty and the glory of the gospel, then you absolutely have to understand these three words. If you want to truly appreciate what the Lord Jesus has done for you in his grace, then grasping, understanding the significance of these words will open up the doors for you, so to speak, for you to be able to do that. And so what we're going to do with the remainder of our time is just focus on these, these profound words, which are justification from verse 24, redemption from verse 24 also, and propitiation, which we see there in verse 25. Paul says we're justified through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forward to be a propitiation for our sin. And I really want us to reflect on these words and their meaning this morning. I mean, many of you probably know them. You probably know what they mean. But it's so important to reflect on these amazing gospel words so we can truly appreciate the awesome experience of being a Christian and what it means for you and me to say that we've been justified by the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, now, we're actually going to go backwards here as we consider these words. I think it's going to help us understand Paul's logic and what um, Jesus has done for us. We've got a cause, a means, and an effect, and Justification is essentially the effect of Christ's work. It's the result of what he's done for us. And so Paul works through the effect to the means, um, to the ultimate cause of our justification. So we're just going to reverse the order as we look at these. So first, just note that Jesus is our propitiation. That's in verse 25. I actually do have an outline for you, believe it or not. I didn't forget. I've got three bullet points for you to outline verses 24 and 25. So first of all, Jesus is our propitiation. And as we consider these these three words, something I want to point out to you in in using them, Paul takes us really into three different environments, three different realms. So we have some some really awesome, profound imagery involved with each one of these words. 
And with this first word, propitiation, Paul takes us back into the Old Testament tabernacle. And in the tabernacle, there was the Ark of the Covenant, which was the place of propitiation. And I want to explain this a little bit further for you. The Ark of the Covenant was placed in the the inner compartment of the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies. And one of the things that was inside the Ark was God's law, which we know was written or inscribed on those stone tablets. And then on top of the ark, there's this lid, which was called the mercy seat. And so what would happen each year on the Day of Atonement is the the high priest would would come in, he'd enter the Holy of Holies, he'd sprinkle the blood of a sacrificed animal on the mercy seat. And the reason that the high priest did this was to appease the, the wrath of God because of the people's sin. God gave very specific instructions on how this was supposed to be done. And what's interesting is this word propitiation, which Paul uses here in Romans 3.25, is actually the New Testament word for mercy seat, for the the lid that was on top of the ark that concealed the law of God. So in a manner of speaking, you could say the mercy seat concealed from God's view the ever-condemning judgment of the law of God. And to help us better understand this word, just think for a moment, if you're a parent, how... You become angry when your child sins. Hopefully you're angry and you don't sin. Child sins. Um, But we can become angry when our child sins. So how do we we persuade, um, how are we persuaded to stop being angry when our child, our children sin? And I was thinking about my own children who are sitting here this morning. And in the Grasmic home, when that usually happens, when one of our children sins, you typically have to do what? They have to go to their room for a timeout, right, guys? Go sit, sit there for a timeout. And then what happens is they don't just sit there and stay there for a timeout. When the timeout's over, they have to come to us, and they have to tell us what they did wrong. They have to confess. They have to ask for forgiveness. And then when they do after that, of course, their hugs, their comforting words to assure them that we still love them in spite of their sin. And that's really what propitiation is. It means turning away anger. Propitiation means to turn away anger. And in the Bible, propitiation is an act by which God's wrath is turned away from us. You can write down Psalm 85. Listen to what Psalm 85 says. It says, you forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath and you turned from your hot anger. That was the the purpose of the annual Old Testament ceremony with the blood on the mercy seat. The the animal sacrifice and the blood on the mercy seat was offered for the covering of the people's sins and to turn away the wrath of God, his anger. But you know what? It was meant to picture something far greater than that. It was meant to picture the Lord Jesus, who is the true propitiation for our sins. See, the, the blood on the mercy seat in the tabernacle on the Day of Atonement, that's only temporary. Because animal blood cannot permanently cover sin and propitiate the wrath of God. Excuse me. Get some water. I need to propitiate my thirst. <clears throat> Only Jesus is able to propitiate the wrath of God. That's why Paul says what he says here in verse 25. That God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. God himself has provided the only means through which his wrath can be appeased and that we as sinful people can be reconciled to him. See, in the New Testament, the act of propitiation always refers to the work of God 
and never the sacrifices or gifts offered by man. The reason for this is that man is totally incapable of satisfying God's justice. There's there's no service, no sacrifice, no gift that we can offer to God that will appease his holy wrath or satisfy his perfect justice. The only satisfaction or propitiation that could be acceptable to God and that can reconcile us to him had to be made by God himself. That's why he sent his only son, Jesus, into the world in human flesh to be the perfect sacrifice for sin and to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Listen to 1 John 2, 1. It says this, He, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4, 10 says this, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Isn't that wonderful news, beloved? I mean, isn't that good news that that Jesus is our mercy seat? That that Jesus himself is actually the covering for our sin. We go back in the book of Romans to chapter 1, verse 18, Paul said that the wrath of God was upon us because of our unrighteousness. And then here in verse 25 of chapter 3, he tells us the good news that Jesus Christ is our propitiation. God had provided the Israelites a place of propitiation on that lid of the ark, and praise God, he still provides a place of propitiation today. And that place is in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus took the wrath that we deserve upon himself. He turned away God's anger from us. What a wonderful Savior we have in Jesus. All right, well, next Paul takes us into another realm. He takes us into the realm of a marketplace to show us that Jesus is our redemption. He's our propitiation, and then second, Jesus is also our redemption. You can write that down as well. Verse 24, Paul says, we're justified through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And I'm kind of a Greek geek. I love the Greek and the the Greek verbs um, especially. But the Greek word that's used here for redemption is apolutrosis. And this word in Paul's day had to do with a, with freeing a slave by paying for him. We've actually got a few different Greek words that can be translated as redemption, and it's definitely worth noting them. One of the words that's used comes from a noun that's used to describe an open marketplace in Greek-speaking lands. It was called an agora. That's the Greek word, an open marketplace where all kinds of things were bought and sold, you know, kind of like Victoria Gardens. There's well, Victoria Dardens doesn't necessarily have grain and oil and pottery. It does have jewelry. Uh, it doesn't have horses. My daughter would like that. Um, it doesn't have slaves. But these types of things could be bought and sold in these agoras, in these marketplaces. And then the verb form of this word, which is agorazo, is translated in English as redeem, which means to buy something. And then we've got another word for redemption that's really similar. There's a a prefix that's added to it. It's the word ex agorazo, and it means to buy out of the marketplace, such that the object or the person, the slave that was purchased, would never have to go back to that marketplace again. And then, as I mentioned, we've got this word that Paul uses here in verse 24, apolutrosis. And this word goes simply... Beyond simply just purchasing something or buying something to keep or to give to someone else, this word apolatrosis means to purchase and then set free. And so what Paul means when he uses this word here in verse 24 is that Jesus has paid the price to set us free. 
Well, free from what, you might say? Well, we have to to remember what Jesus had to say about the bad news for us in the Gospel of John. He said that apart from him, we're in bondage to sin. See, part of our awful problem is that we're born into spiritual slavery as slaves to sin with an evil slave master called the devil. Jesus tells us in John 8, 34, that he who commits sin is a slave to sin. But part of the good news, though, is that Jesus paid the price for our release from from sin and its punishment. And the Bible tells us he's the only one who could afford what it costs. The cost was the blood of a gracious, sinless Savior. Listen to Ephesians 1, 7. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. The Bible tells us that Jesus gave his life to secure our redemption. Hebrews 9.12 says he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, animal blood, we mentioned won't cover the cost to free us eternally from sin, not by the means of blood and goats and calves, it says, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Aren't you so thankful for that, church family? I mean, aren't you just so grateful for Jesus having purchased your freedom with his own precious blood? I mean, that's something that, that we can praise him for forever. I think of Revelation 5, 9, it says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Praise God today, loved ones, that we are Christians who've been redeemed and forgiven and set free. You need to, to understand that Jesus has set you free from the bondage of sin so that you can have peace with God through him. You can have a clear conscience, knowing that even though you struggle with the presence of sin, this sin doesn't reign over you, and that you've been set free to to love Jesus and to live for Jesus. And, And man, if we had the time to do this, to go back in the Old Testament and look at the background for this, it would be so fun. There's a, a romance to this. There's an intimacy to this, to Jesus setting us free and actually becoming our kinsman redeemer. But unfortunately, we, we just can't do that. So that's going to have to be another sermon for another time. But we actually have one more arena or realm that Paul takes us to uh, to describe what Jesus has done for us. And it's going to be familiar. We've already touched on it. This is the courtroom environment. The courtroom. So Jesus is our propitiation, Jesus is our redemption, and then third, Jesus is also our justification. Paul moves from the tabernacle into the marketplace. Now we're moving into the courtroom to deal with our condemnation and the guilt of our sin. And he's shown us there's no excuse for it. There's nothing that we can plead on our behalf, nothing we can bring to God, nothing we can do for God be counted as righteous. We can't pray enough. We can't read the Bible enough. We can't serve enough. We can't give enough. We can't repent enough. We can't even have enough faith. There's nothing at all we can do to save ourselves from our sin. You know what? There's one who can. Praise God, there's one who can, one who can cover all our sin and unrighteousness with his perfect righteousness. Praise God, there's one who's borne God's holy judgment against our sin And his name is Jesus, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, Jesus, our justifier. Paul's telling us here, beloved, with this beautiful imagery, the the cause and means and result of what Jesus has done for us, that because Jesus is a propitiation from our sins, in him we experience redemption from sin, 
And then by faith in Jesus, we come to be justified from all of our sins. See, church, our our problem is not only that God's angry with our sin and that we're under his wrath, and it's not only that by our very nature we're in bondage to sin, and our problem is not just that we have no defense before the judgment seat of God. Our problem is all three of these things together. It's all three. And the glory of the gospel is that God looks at us in our utter sinfulness, in our radical depravity, in our helpless and hopeless situation, and he sees us there in this situation, and in his mercy and in his amazing grace, God's provided for us his own son, Jesus, who's able to save us from all these horrible, awful things. Listen to Paul from Titus chapter 3. He says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Listen to this. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Wow. I mean, wow. Aren't you grateful for that? I mean, doesn't that just fill your heart with joy and abundant love for Jesus? That that Jesus has justified you and given you the hope of eternal life with him? I mean, what could possibly be better than that? That that Jesus has taken our sin upon himself in exchange for his perfect righteousness so that we can actually have a right standing before God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he, God the Father, made him to be sin his son Jesus, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Praise God. Praise God. In other words, Jesus is our justifier. Listen, Jesus is the answer to this problem in verse 26. Jesus is how God can be just and at the same time the justifier of the unrighteous. It's a mind-blowing truth. I mean, it truly is. And so my question for you then today is this. Have you been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, by the blood of Jesus? Have you been redeemed? Has Jesus set you free from the bondage of your sin? If not, then the wrath of God is still abiding upon you. And listen, if the Spirit of God is impressing upon your heart at this very moment that you need to be saved from your sin and the wrath of God, then repent right now and believe upon Jesus Christ. Confess your sin to God. Say, I'm a sinner. And I want to turn from my sin. And I receive Jesus. And I trust in Jesus as my only hope. The only hope for my salvation. And don't don't reject this appeal from the Lord. Because every time you do, your heart becomes a little bit more hardened to the gospel. And a little bit more hardened to Jesus. And eventually you're going to reach a point where you no longer hear the voice of God through his word. And it will result in an eternal separation from God in hell. We would never want that to happen to anyone here. So the time's now to acknowledge Jesus Christ as your only way to be saved. So I want to implore you, call on him now as your savior, otherwise he will be your judge. Where where are you looking today to have a life that is righteous before God and and a life that is set free from the bondage of sin? What are you trusting in for your salvation? God says it's in Jesus Christ alone. It's, it's solus Christian, Christus, Christian, solus Christus. 
There's, there's salvation in no one else, the Bible says, for there's no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. And then, believer, Christian, I want to implore you today as well to trust in Jesus Christ alone. And that might sound kind of strange to you. Preacher, why, why are you telling me to trust in Christ alone when I'm already a Christian? Why would you say that to me? Well, I'm telling you that because our tendency is to revert back into trusting ourselves. Trusting in our own efforts to live the Christian life and, and how well we do in following after Jesus. You know what? If, if we do that, that's what we do, then we're just going to be discouraged in our walk with Jesus. Our, our hearts are going to sink if that's, if that's our mentality. We'll be like Peter who, who looked away from the Lord. He looked down to his own feet and he began to sink. Don't don't trust in how well you walk for Jesus, dear ones. Don't trust in your faith. Don't trust in your joy. Don't trust in your hope. Don't trust in how well you hold on to Jesus. Trust in Jesus Christ alone. Trust that Jesus Christ is holding on to you. And, And I have to quote the words of Charles Spurgeon here. I mean, he says this so well. This is beautiful. Listen to this. Listen to this. He says, remember, therefore... It is not thy hold of Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. It is not thy joy in Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. It is not even faith in Christ, though that be the instrument. It's Christ's blood and his merits. Therefore, look not so much to thy hand with which thou art grasping Christ as to Christ. Look not to thy hope, but to Jesus. The source of thy hope, look not to faith, to Jesus, the author and finisher of thy faith. Beloved, trust in Jesus Christ alone, who is your propitiation, your redemption, and your justification. And enjoy him for the glorious Savior that he is and all that he's done for you. Amen? Let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning that you've taken the wrath of God that we deserve upon yourself, that you are our propitiation. Thank you, Lord, that you've freed us from the bondage of sin, that you're our redemption. Lord, we thank and praise you for covering our unrighteousness with your perfect righteousness, that you're our justification. Lord, would you please give us hearts to see our sin, to see your greatness as our Savior? So that even as we're humbled by our sin, you're exalted in the gospel. We trust in you alone for salvation and life. Praise you, Lord, that since therefore we have now been justified by your blood, much more shall we be saved by you from the wrath of God. Praise you, Lord, that we've been washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. We pray these things in your holy and precious name.